Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. Hi, I'm Andy Wood. Hey, Andy. Hello, Matt. It's, uh, it's getting to the point where really turning off the air conditioning to record the podcast is is a challenge. Instantly, it's back up to, what do we have? Oh, 76? That's not that. 77? 76. Yeah. We'll Inside. keep track. God, it's like, this is not, this is just not going to stop till October. It's just going to be, this is, it's not a heat wave. It's just, this is what the new it's normal for the LA new is. heat. Let's talk about that in a yeah. bit. There's a couple of fun climate change stories this week. And by fun, fun, I mean horrifying, <laughs> horrifying, horrifying stories. An old friend of mine is in town. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, thank a, you for having me. Thanks for coming. That's a British voice. That's the voice of uh, writer, journalist, and now music supervisor for Lodge 49, brand new show on AMC, and I believe Amazon Prime in the UK. It's Thomas Patterson. Hey, Tom. Hey, Matt. Hey, thank you for inviting me along. What a joy to be in a hot box of an apartment <laughs> uh, in Hollywood. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Welcome back to town. Uh, it's always great to be here. You, li- you lived here for a lot longer than I did. You used to live here for ages. I did. I was here a while ago, and I lived all over town, so... I've lived in Los Feliz, I've lived up behind the Hollywood Bowl, I know this town very, very well. But even having lived here, even I'm amazed how hot it's getting. I can't remember summers being like this brutal. No, they really are. It's, it's enough to make you want to move, almost. It's really, if, it's, if this is how it's always going to be from now on, I mean, everyone's going to have to find better... My air conditioner does not do anything. It doesn't reach my bedroom, so every night I'm just burning up. And uh, Well, I mean, I'd say move to London, but I don't think it's rained. I think there was one rain thunderstorm, like, last week. But apart from that, it hasn't rained for, like, four months. Well, in England, everyone gets very excited when it's hot and at first but now i think even even the brits are now getting to the point where they're like oh dear yes <laughs> oh this isn't good at all <laughs> we hit 101 for the first time in london in recorded history i think last week at which point oh, everyone went oh no because well, of course we don't have air conditioning why would you yeah. we're a cold rainy place and bear in mind in the uk in general if it hits if it hits the 80s then everyone leaves work like that's it that's it for the day we've talked about this on the show before that's basically people just walk naked onto the streets and it's just accepted like public nudity is accepted by that point (laughs) well one of the things as well is it's this time of year it's the edinburgh festival you know where comedians and performers all uh, descend on edinburgh and normally everyone's going oh i don't want to go to edinburgh because it's rainy and it's cold even in summer yeah it steals your summer (laughs) away from you exactly but now everyone's like oh thank god for that (laughs) i'm going to get a bit of scottish rain it's going to be good (laughs) Cool me down a tiny bit. Yeah, that kind of surprised me. I was there during Tea in the Park in like 2011. That's middle of July, so it should be yeah. the best possible weather, and it was just pouring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of that Mark Twain quote, which is, what is it? Uh, the the coldest winter I ever spent was summer in San Francisco. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Edinburgh just transposed. It's the same thing. Uh, yeah, I lived in the Presidio in San Francisco, and all summer I would be working downtown, beautiful weather, I take the bus home and halfway across the city, you just hit that layer of fog and then it's just 20 degrees colder. My house looked like a horror movie every day with just like fog sweeping up from the ocean over the house. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, the other thing is I miss wearing jackets. You know, it's I, nice I, to I, be able to wear a jacket yeah. or pants and yeah. not be uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you see, I trousers got, for Yeah, minutes. indeed. Well, I always wear my pants as well. But yeah, I got married uh, in December and uh, I've been in kind of like post 
wedding bliss of just eating and drinking anything I want. And I managed to put on 25 pounds, so nothing actually fits me. So I kind of wish I had a coat that I could actually just wrap around me to, to hide my shame. Well, you could wear it. This is good toga weather. Yeah, exactly. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where, where Homer puts on that weight and wears the moo-moo. <laughs> moo-moo would be perfect right now. Nice. <laughs> Lysed linen or yeah, exactly. a dashiki, maybe? Those yeah. are pretty forgiving, aren't or they? Or a sarong like David Beckham. Yeah, why the hell? Is he just sarong? Oh, that was Sorry, back, that was in, the about, that was back in the day, yeah. He he suddenly made it okay for a man yeah. to wear sarongs. <laughs> and we've never looked searching. back. <laughs> it was it really changed Britain. Changed Britain for the better. But there has been a, a story that listener Justin Broad sent in that. Uh, Finland heatwave has forced reindeer to cool off with sunbathers at the beach. Reindeer have been now seen <laughs> in the north of Finland. This picture looks wow. fake, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe it. I'm going to It does side with ABC.net. Oh, look at those pictures. All you need now is like a picture of Father Christmas. Sorry, Santa Claus. <laughs> They're there on the beach in his, in his swimmers. His red and white speedo. Do Americans yeah. not say Father Christmas? You say Father Christmas, well, don't you? Only if we're singing that uh, did you, song. Do you not? I did not know that. You did too. No, I swear. That's one again. <laughs> Father Christmas? You didn't? You thought that was an American thing? I thought that was a universal thing. No. You only say Santa Claus. Unless you're covering, is it the Kinks? The Kinks song, yeah, yeah Father Christmas. My favorite Christmas yeah. song. But um, Which means it makes the, no sense for that title of the movie, Arthur Christmas. So it doesn't mean anything in America. British, uh, like uh, I had, I mean, Santa it's Claus barely movie? a pun anyway. Yeah, right? I mean, but it's all to me, I guess. <laughs> is it about a common person who becomes Santa Claus? It's about Father Christmas's son. Oh, is it? Okay. Who I takes over the business. I know it's written by the great Peter Bainham. It, it is, and my friend Tim Lochran, who you might have met, was one of the chief animators on it. Ah. So yeah, and it got, I think, watched by about three people. Oh. <laughs> Peter Bainham, who co-wrote Borat and is behind... Oh. A lot of the best British comedies of the nineties and two thousands. Yeah, part of uh, the Chris Morris crew. Does he was the in Maddie Brass Eye? Oh, yeah, awesome. yeah. Is that yeah. also in like the Richard Iowate, like Muddy Boosh circle? Is that a different circle? That's guys? a sort of like, generation after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, oh, everything like the on the hour, the day to day. Alan Partridge, he co-wrote. Okay, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Very important figure in comedy, and a good. And it is actually, it is a good film. It's a very enjoyable film with. Hugh Laurie and Jim Broadbent and James McAvoy all doing voices. It's, James it's McAvoy, good, yeah. wow. It's a good, it's good, fun Christmas romp. God, Christmas. Oh, so, 2011. I thought it was longer ago than that. Okay, yeah. that's not that far. So while, while Southern Europe is used to temperatures in the high 30s, this is going to be in Celsius, this article, for the countries near the Arctic Circle, the heat is unexpected. In Finland, the maximum daily temperature has ranged between 25 and 30 degrees. So that's what, mid-70s to early 80s. Mm-hmm. It's a low so. 80s. Sure. 20 is 68. I know that much is exact. Let me see what 30 is uh, without having to do the... It would be 18 <laughs> above that. It would be 86. It would be 30. Uh, yep. Yes. Well done, you. Applause. So, according to data... F- so, yeah, that's really hot for the Arctic Circle. <laughs> <laughs> according to data from the Finnish Meteorological Institute, the fairly typical maximum temperature is 24 to tw- 21 to 24 degrees. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've done this story before, but wasn't it last year announced that there's that uh, vault that they've put in the Arctic where they're it's putting all the seeds all for the, all seed the plants yep. and, and it's now melting in the permafrost that's supposed to be there forever and protect it forever. And now it's temper frost. I've heard about that. Where? I'm looking that up. And we, we've, I thought we've talked about it before. It's definitely... It doesn't sound familiar. 
Huh. Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Yeah, and and it's it's up there so that mankind for all eternity will have a record of every single plant and seed that is in existence, and it's already flooded because oh, the because the frost is melting. I think they lost some of it, but they've saved most of it. Yeah, it's a cool looking building too, or at least the entrance to it. It's very like. Uh, Something out of, out of the thing. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't want to be stuck there for a long winter. Let's hope they saved the seeds from the like marijuana weed plant. <laughs> High five, everybody. We're going to smoke the reefer in the future. Post-apocalyptic stoner comedy. This writes itself. You hear me, yeah. bro? <laughs> uh, hey, so I, I want to... Y- this is your first music supervising job. You ended up... Yeah, incredibly so. I mean, I've been a music journalist. I've been a music journalist and I've been a music consultant in the UK. And you can play ukulele. I can play the ukulele, yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, I did a big series for Sky Arts in the UK called Trailblazers Of, which was a 19-part series. Each one was a different uh, look at a different genre of music, so punk and goth and things like that. And uh, it was done on an incredibly low budget, and about halfway through, they ran out of money and said to me, uh, we can't afford any more talking heads. Will you be in and fill, the, fill all the gaps in? So I ended up being on TV for a lot of this 19-hour series, and a lot of people on Twitter going, who the hell are you? <laughs> who's this idiot, and why is he te- telling me about funk? Because if there's somebody who's good at <laughs> telling the world about the history of funk, it's a white guy from Chiswick. I'm assuming you were wearing, like, Booty Collins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had, you know, George Clinton hat, you know. Um, so I did that, and that led to doing a lot of music consultancy work for uh, other documentaries and things like that. I was working with a company in London, it's kind of like developing shows. And out here, I actually did some music development at Will I Am Studio, the future, which is over kind of off Melrose. It's called a, the future. It's called the future. Just so you can keep going, I'm off to the future. <laughs> uh, we need to go back to the future. It's just every it's just... And, and I mean, I, I worked in there for a couple of weeks and it was it was crazy. And I don't know what I was doing there. And I don't know what anybody else was doing there other than <laughs> every woman in there looked like Amber Rose. And I mean, I'm not a short guy. I'm 5'11", but I felt like a midget. Like everyone there was like 6'5", kind of bronze god. And I was just like, why am that I doesn't here? Seem like a music studio. No, it, I didn't I didn't know. Well, because it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't a music studio, though. It's where... Are we allowed to say midget anymore, by the way? I think Uh, think that's off the list. Sorry, I'll take that back. I felt like a diminutive person. There Uh, we go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, it's not just a music place. It's where it's Will I Am's own Willy Wonka factory. And he comes up with apps and he was making some reality TV show where he was teaching people how to leverage their brand. Like exciting times. It might have been. Hang on, I could be wrong about this. A friend of mine who is a tech person was working. F- it might have been Will. I am. It was definitely someone of a similar ilk, like someone of a similar level of fame in the music business, who uh, was uh, had a headphone company for a bit. Yeah, that's probably him because he was designing headphones at the time. There we go. Yeah, that's right. And the whole idea is that nobody can make money from music anymore. It's not possible. Right. So you have to turn yourself into a 
brand like the Kardashians and it was like The Apprentice and each week someone would get voted off and at the end someone was going to be this new Instagram superstar thing and I don't know if it ever got made so, so that these was incredibly tall men who were walking yeah. around were just sort of there, there. To- <laughs> they were just there they were building their brands yeah. guys it's not, I don't it know what, happen if you stay at home it's- I don't know what anyone did. and it was kind of one of those places I'll tell you what it looked like as well it looked like the set of Blake 7 uh, which is a 1970s English sci-fi show uh, made out of kind of white plastic so it was someone's 1970s vision of the future and all the chairs were, were kind of like rhomboid and hexagonal and very <laughs> strange to sit in. And also, I've just remembered I signed a non-disclosure agreement and I shouldn't oh. be talking about this at all. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. I do think uh, the 70s version of the future was one of the best versions of the future, though. Yeah, exactly. They uh, really nailed it. Yeah. It's kind of everything that we've now done since in what is now the future yeah, is trying to exactly. harken back to that world. I mean, it's... Uh, God bless Will I Am, though. I mean, he's created his own vision of what he loves and he's gone for it, so... Good for him. Uh, so anyway, so I did some work with that, and I've done lots of music work. And then uh, this came along because it's written by a very, very good old friend of mine, Jim Gavin. He's a fantastic writer. We used to write together. We wrote a couple of scripts. But Jim wrote a book of short stories called Middlemen. Uh, Simon just a really fantastic book about young guys kind of adrift in Southern California. And... Um, Somehow that got to Paul Giamatti, who loved it. He's a great writer. And Paul Giamatti produced this show that Jim wrote. Uh, and it's a fantastic show. Uh, it, it started airing on AMC last night, immediately after Better Call Saul. And uh, it's about a kind of surf bum who ends up joining a fraternal lodge, like a dusty old Elks Lodge, and the strange adventures that then ensue. And Jim was playing a lot of... I make a lot of compilations and music things, and I DJ a lot. And he was playing a lot of the music I was using in the writer's room and people like this is great and it was then suggested that i put him for the music supervisor job and i did and i and i got it and i think that caused a lot of put a lot of backs up in hollywood because i haven't done it before certainly out here there are a lot of people who are way more experienced than me who should have been doing it uh but i got it i did it and it was an absolute adventure and uh Hopefully, people like it. I mean, people have been tweeting in support of both the show and the soundtracks, which is really, yeah, really Pat nice. Yeah, Pat Oswalt went on a big Twitter stream about it and specifically singled out the music as well as the writing. And it's then, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he would have gone on IMDb and looked up my name and tweeted me specifically, which was like incredible. So I was like, Damn. wow, thank you. Can you? I haven't seen it yet. Can you tease a couple of the things that you liked most music wise you put in there? Well, yeah. So we were talking about this last night, and you, you went on some quite deep trip internet and investigative treks to try and find the person who would sign the release for yeah them. absolutely so you know we, we kind of have a lot of uh, contemporary bands who have a neo-psychedelic feel okay. they, they, the, the thing has got this kind of hazy vibe and it lends well, can itself I, can to, I guess oh uh, yeah I just got an album I love by a band called Temples I know they're not new it's, but, uh, it is that kind of world but it's not Temples I mean we have Broadcast in there who are one of Jim's favourite bands there's one band called The Sound Carriers who I love from Nottingham and we've actually got seven of their tracks in the show oh, nice. they're all the way through uh, and uh, there's um, a label in Britain called Ghost Box we've got some of their bands Bellbury Polly things like that but then we go deep, and I've got a lot of stuff that's never been digitized, lots of dusty old seven-inch singles that I had to track down. Uh, Jim had already got a bit of a roadmap in the script already. He'd written in a few songs. And the last episode ends with a song called Going All The Way by a garage rock band called The Squires. Now, the main character in the show is a squire. That's his 
position in the in this lodge and so it made sense the squires it was great and this track was on the original nuggets two box set famous garage rock mm-hmm. box set but the paperwork has been lost in the mists of time and i don't think nuggets two properly licensed it and so i we we wanted it and everyone was saying to you, you will never get it you, it just can't be done that paperwork is lost and i just went on a hunt and then and I went through one person to one person to one person. I talked to Mike Stacks, this legend in the garage rock world. And eventually I tracked down the guy who wrote the song and found him. And he said, oh, yeah, I recorded it myself. I have the paperwork in 50 Holy years. Shit. Nobody has ever asked me for it. People have just <laughs> used it. So we found him and we we gave him more money than we should have done just as a kind of karmic payment. This is you, what you, you deserve. You, you, should, you should have this. I mean, it's still not a great amount of money, but it was enough for him to like so cool. buy a new computer and put a down payment on a second-hand car. <laughs> what did and you say? Like buy a computer because he didn't have he an didn't email. have he, he did not have an email. Holy he shit. he he has a Facebook page, but it was maintained by his neighbour, <laughs> who wow. checked it like every three weeks, kind of thing. So uh, that we found that there's another track in it called "Time Marches On" by a band called The Peels. That was insane. I had to find a company that was run out of Vegas that was owned by a husband and wife who seemed fairly mafiosi. They owned a lot of companies <laughs> and they were in the middle of getting a divorce and no one knew how to contact them. And I found some representative for them in San Francisco who was like, well, I could license you the track, but you have to get the permission of the writer. So I tracked the writer down, and it turns out a guy called Tash Howard, he died in the 70s. <laughs> so I had to then find out whether he had any living heirs. So I hired a <laughs> private detective in Brooklyn to find out whether this dude had any heirs, which he didn't. So then it was just like, no, actually, it wasn't even him. It was a guy called Ronald Dynastine who'd taken control of his company. It was crazy. And then I just looked a bit more into the music and I discovered that there was a co-writer on the album called Charles Fox. Now, Charles Fox is actually the dude who wrote Killing Me Softly. What? And, and the Happy Days theme tune. <laughs> so I contacted... I've got, I got Charles Fox and I was just like, Mr. Fox, we have this song and you co-wrote it and we want it. And he was just like, oh my God, how on earth did you find this song? It's like completely forgotten about. And he was like, he's a bigwig at... Um, ASCAP and uh, BMI and it was like I will take control of it you know I I will take all the rights for it I will indemnify you if anyone comes forward for it and please go Damn. use it with my blessing <laughs> so I mean and every episode had a song like that which was just crazy that's so cool wait how did you how did you discover that song in the first place it was uh, I had I had a dusty old seven inch of it and I think I heard it years ago uh, a club in London. It had become a bit of a kind of hit amongst Northern Soul fans for some reason. Uh, but and you can find it on YouTube. But it is still a bit of an obscurity. I think some DJ in London must have liked it about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Played it a few times, and I went, "That's brilliant!" And I found it. What's it called? It's called "Time Marches On" by the Peels. Time marches on. Are there any other songs from this or the rest of the series that you? that are now available digitally because you did this unearthing? People can no, have, no not there. yet. What we're going to do, though, is we started last night. I believe we're going to put a Spotify, Spotify playlist together. Uh, and I'm going to see what I can do about getting tracks from that, from, from our show on there. That's great. Who knows what will happen? I mean, some of this stuff is YouTubeable, but it's not on Official. iTunes or 
Spotify or anything like that. I think we've got 15 tracks in total in the show that are unshazamable, wow. which is kind of quite a high hit rate of <laughs> weird, obscure songs. And, you know, I I didn't want to be obscure for the sake of being obscure. That, that's Nobody wins in that sense. But I think the songs work and it sounds good. And hopefully it's an exciting show for people to listen to. I mean, the... Chief critic of the New York Times specifically tweeted out again, I love this soundtrack. It's unshaz- I, I've tried to Shazam so many tracks and I can't find them. Well, and so also cool. some of them were written just for the show as well. There was also a music yeah. person. We had we have a composer, a guy called Andrew Carroll, who was from LA and part of a band called The Lonely Wild. And I put out we, we put out a tender process to get a composer uh, and we put out an audition to write a theme tune and I contacted some musicians I'd worked with. We got Peter Ocko, the showrunner, contacted some he knew. But Weirdly, Andrew came from Andy Sierra, who was our um, writer's assistant. Uh-huh. Now, Andy Sierra is in a great band called the Henry Clay People. And he was like, look, my buddy Andrew has done a couple of indie movies. Can he put in? We're like, yeah, of course you can. You know, I, I'm sure if any of us had more experience in this world, we'd be like, no. But it's my first go around. Peter's <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. And he and I, I had to come up with a brief. And I said, I want it to sound like this. And it was an impossible brief. I was like, it has to be psychedelic with hints of medieval madrigals and Edida also lyrics, who's the female singer on Morricone tracks. And he did it. <laughs> he came through and I was like, oh my God. So we said, look, why don't we try it out? We'll give it a couple of weeks. Mm. If it's working out, it's working out. And it did. And it was brilliant. And his, his music is really, really good. It really makes the show sing. Here's, here's the peel time munches on. I got it here. Oh, I like the twelve string. Yeah, it's got a kind of happy days vibe. <laughs> it's not instrumental, though, right? No, it's oh, got. Some, it, it has some <laughs> lyrics, but only in the chorus. It's also a little Hawaii Five O with the horns. Yeah. yeah. And this opens episode seven. Nice. I, like I mean, and this is just a B-side to a weird song of theirs called Screwy Mooey that's a rip-off of Louie Louie. <laughs> <laughs> which is about a crazy cow. All right, that's enough right, of that. There we are. That's so crazy. there you are. Congrats, that's that's so awesome. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, so hopefully people enjoy it. And yeah, 10 weeks. I, it's one of those things I always, the show in general, I thought was going to divide opinion. Uh, I thought half the audience would love it and half would go, what is it? And it seems to be 80, 20 actually. The love has been amazing with about 20% of people going, it's boring, I don't get it. Or uh, there's quite, quite a lot of weird racists coming out of the woodwork going, oh, I nice. can't believe there's a show with a black lead. And you're like, oh, oh dear, sorry. That's... <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, Metacritic, uh, you guys are doing very well. People in general love yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I think Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes uh, is quite about 89%, something like that. Metacritic's yeah. in the 60s, definitely. So, 69. yeah. 69. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. 69, dude. The sexiest rating. <laughs> uh, I also love the premise because I can relate to it. I joined uh, Fraternal Order. Oh, did you? In my 30s. I was running a comedy festival in Portland, and we wanted to Oh, use... that's right. I forgot you had to join it to actually... Yeah, we wanted to use it as a venue for yeah, yeah. stages for the festival, and I found out you can't rent it, but if you're a member, you can. I'm like, well, what does it take to be a member? And they said, like, 40 bucks or something. Wow. <laughs> and I have to fill out this application, and I, would have been, I was the, by far the youngest member, and the application was hilarious. It was... Um, 
like the questions were like, do you like to dance? What type of music? Uh, do you believe in higher power? <laughs> like, and what could you have been not allowed in if you'd got the wrong kind of like music or higher power? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What did you say to that question? I for, I think I just yeah, said yes to everything. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I listed specific genres I like to dance to, but it's just so funny how quickly the I like to listen to upbeat the, music. Um, but then I joined. And I had to do this whole ceremony, and they brought out these podiums on rollers and all the different. You know, there were four different. Um, I didn't know any of this. Chiefs or what? I forgot what the different names for the positions. What were. What was your lodge called? It's the Eagles Lodge for Triple okay. Order of Eagles. Right, okay. And uh, it was the one on Hawthorne and 39th, or Hawthorne and like 47th in Portland. I think it's probably being, the, the land is worth so much. I can't believe they've held on this long. Um, they mostly just do swap meets and things. But anyway, so I was being initiated and they needed to have a quorum. They needed to have four, three or four of these heads. And I think two of them were out because of hospitalization. <laughs> and the guy who was doing, the president, I wish I knew the names for the different titles because I'm sure they vary by the lodge. But um, let's say the head, the the chief eagle, um, he was going through this whole process and reading from this book. And it seemed like he hadn't done this in years. Like everyone didn't know what the procedures were. (laughs) So I think no one had joined in decades. He's like, I think now we, okay, you're supposed to, Okay, Jim's having his gallstone surgery. Um, (laughs) Let's just pretend like he's here and then you do this and say this. And uh, and it was cool. Like I got to go in a time where the average cocktail in Portland probably costs like eight bucks. They had like two dollar vodka tonics. All yeah, day long. <laughs> you can't you can't yeah. beat that. I mean, Susie, my wife, uh, she's a member of Soho House, whereas I'm the member of uh, the local Chiswick Working Man's Club. <laughs> Three pounds a pint, and it only cost me a tenner a year. That's great. Yeah. But uh, that sounds very much like what Lodge Forty Nine is about. It is about this dying club, and this is the first new member, and we do have the initiation thing he has to go through. And what was very sweet was last night a bunch of real life Lodge Forty Nines had viewing parties. Around I didn't the even world. know that was base. It was. I didn't know you the, hadn't made up the lodge for the. F- well, well, we have. It's called the Lynx Lodge, but there are lots of different real life lodges who like the, l- who happen to be number forty nine. Oh, of their, oh, I of, see. Of their okay, thing. Whatever. So, so there was one like in Aurora and somewhere else, and they all have viewing parties. And Wyatt Russell, who's the star, who's Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's son, recorded oh. personal messages for them. And that's so cool. Yeah, I can't wait to see this. Oh, I just I didn't even know about this until yesterday when you were like, "You got to watch this show." That's, that's <laughs> this story. Uh, just because you mentioned Louie Louie and the rip-off, what was it called again? Screwy Mooie. <laughs> Screwy <laughs> Mooie. I just put a story in the top of the dock there, Andy. Infants, I don't remember whether this is one that we've, I found or whether someone sent it in. I'm sorry if you sent this in and I'm not crediting you. Infants whose parents talk to them using so-called baby words learn to speak more quickly, a new study has found. Ooh. Words such as choo-choo, tummy, or mummy help babies build their vocabulary faster than adult language alone. Research by the University of Edinburgh found that not only are words with repetitive symbols or those ending with a Y easier for babies to pick up, but using them accelerates language acquisition, including learning more complicated words as a whole. The the results challenge the advice given in some parenting manuals, which frowns on cooing at children and stresses the need to address infants using adult words alone. Linguists recorded samples of speech spoken to 47 infants aged from nine months learning English. They then analyzed the speech for features that characterize baby talk words, going on to assess the infant's language development by measuring the size of the vocabulary at 9, 15, and 21 months. How many kids do they do? 47. That doesn't seem like a very large I guess it's group. Pretty, is, that, is that fairly standard? It's pretty hard know. to, I think, do a big study when you've got kids involved. But you're right. This is definitely something that probably bears repetition with more people that... 
as well as analyzing so-called diminutives ending in Y and reduplication, which contains repeated syllables, they checked for onomatopoeic words such as woof and splash. They found that infants who heard a higher proportion of diminutive words and words with repeated syllables developed their language more quickly between 9 and 21 months. However, they did not find this effect on vocabulary growth for onomatopoeic baby talk words, also known as parentees. Interesting. That seems like a subtle distinction. Yeah. The observed effects are particularly remarkable given that the proportion of words identified as having diminutive or reduplicated structures were not overwhelmingly large in the overall speech addressed to the infants, typically not more than 5%, and they highlight the potential impact a small section of the linguistic input can have on early language development, the authors wrote. Even though words like choo-choo and bunny appear superfluous, they may play an important role in bootstrapping the development of the lexicon as a whole. That's a complicated way of saying... It's almost going against what they their findings. The the researchers believe that the continuity afforded by words that end in Y, as well as those repetitive syllables, gives the developing mind something to recognize, which then acts as a building platform for learning further words. So what if you do repetitive, diminutive, onomatopoeia? Like, splashy, splashy. Does that make it better? <laughs> uh, all right, it each other out. Oh, also, it says in this article, the study follows research which found that infants whose parents talked to them at a higher pitch but with elongated vowels had learned nearly three times more words by the age of what? two compared with infants whose parents do not. That's okay. crazy. Hello! That's exactly what they said. The more parents exaggerated vowels, such as the case of how are you, the better one-year-old babbled, which is a forerunner of word production. Wow. Past research has also shown that baby talk is most effective when a parent speaks to a child individually without other adults or children around. The NHS recommends that during the first six months, parents hold babies close and look at them while talking to them, as well as singing in order to help them tune into the rhythm of language. Between six and 12 months, parents are advised to name and point out things that both they and the baby can see. That, that is interesting because... I. I, I don't know how I would be if I were raising a kid. I feel my instinct would be going like, no, the the more you talk to them like a, an adult and the less you sort of, the the more you just talk in front of them and talk to them, the quicker they'll pick up the language. But it that, turns out the, the baby talk does help them yeah. latch on to language. Yeah. I mean, that would be the logical principle. And I know plenty of adults. I'm not a parent myself, but I do know parents who talk to their child as if they were like a lawyer talking to a client <laughs> I think we not all, now trevor i think i heard that places in, in the valise <laughs> exactly the valise <laughs> that's I, I somewhere along the way in the last couple decades i i think i heard that too and i was like oh that's what you're supposed to do it's just yeah. like they'll get there faster if you but it's crazy just like what people intuitively do is actually or maybe it's not crazy they intuitively do the thing that's better for kids but isn't that also more fun for, for the for the parent yeah. Talk, baby talk. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to do that. That's fun. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> when they're very young, yeah, but you you feel like, it It does feel like when you see people talk to young kids and go like, you got your bot-bot? You got your bot-bot? Yeah. Instead of bottle, it feels like you're actually holding them back. It feels like you're going, oh, no, they're not going to learn to talk properly if you don't say bottle. They, yeah. Why are you why are you babying this baby? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but it turns out there's a reason for that. It does, it it might actually help them develop. It, they actually will learn to speak. At I, I guess there's that worry that if you use baby talk at them too much, then that's how they will develop their language. Talk. Yes, exactly. Like that. But yeah. there, there was also that that whole controversy with the Teletubbies a while back. Probably around the same time that Jerry Falwell was convinced that one of them was gay, was making kids gay. Uh-huh. Remember that, like twenty years ago? Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. know the one. 
Was it Tinky Winky? Is yeah. The, uh, yeah. Is he purple? Yeah, that is the purple one. It has a hamburger. It's uh, a hamburger. It has a handbag, rather. But I think also some kind of child developmental psychologists were saying that Teletubbies were hurting kids because they were encouraging this gobbledygook instead of teaching them to talk. But maybe Teletubbies were helping the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. To Jerry Falwell. Well, I was going to, but now. <laughs> right. Until, until now. Uh yeah, I think I think Teletubbies was actually really well designed to I had a young sister who was Teletubby age when the show came out. Right. And I, they they do things like they play I don't know how well you remember the show at all, but they would play a live action. I guess everything's live action because there's people inside the suits, but they play a video of I think a baby or someone going about their day or doing a thing. It would be a f- few minutes long video of a thing that yeah. they would watch in the middle of the like the show within the show yeah absolutely I and mean, they play it in its entirety and then they play it again a second time they just repeat it immediately and it wasn't being cheap that's actually educationally productive yes I mean I do remember reading an article about the woman who created it and something or other and she is I might be wrong on that on her name but uh, she is a kind of like progressive in the field of education and the shows that she make she makes for kids, and she's done a whole bunch. I think she might have done the tweenies, too. We're uh, all very much about um, education for children. They weren't just... And would. And would. They weren't just weird creatures doing stuff for the sake of being weird. Yep. And would and Andrew Davenport, and she made Rosie and Jim, Tots TV, and the Teletubbies. Okay. And she qualified as a secondary school teacher, and... Yeah, I think she's a qualified teacher, and children's tv producer yeah i think a lot of though you know child psychological research went into the shows right unlike say the banana splits <laughs> i so barely remember it i remember it as a thing but i couldn't tell you a thing about the show it's got a great theme tune one banana two banana three banana four five banana six banana seven banana more la 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 snorkel bingo something and something it's a bit old. It was. It's American, and I. I don't think they really showed it in the UK, but I had it on VHS from somewhere. It was around. It was at seven, It must be late sixties, early seventies. Oh, it's Sid and Marty Croft. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we never got in the UK. We never really got Sid and Marty Croft. So we never got um, HR Puff and stuff. Even though that starred, um, was it Jack Wild? Who is that? His name? The actor who was the artful dodger in Oliver. So oh, he so he starred in that, but yeah. that stuff never came over to the UK. It was before my time, but I mostly know it from various parodies of it, like the Mr. Show one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, Sid and Marty Croft were the recipients of some Lifetime Achievement Award at the Daytime Emmys, which I went to this year. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, they were pioneers in American TV for kids that just never kind of made it over, yeah. over our side of the pond. Also, I just Googled Teletubby Controversy. There was an article on Slate last December about how... But the headline is, yep, the purple Teletubby was gay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? This has been confirmed. Well, they, they said uh, the incident is now remembered as a kind of dumb climax to the 90s culture wars. The reductio ad absurdum of religious right paranoia and the epitome of pre-9-11 unseriousness. But here's the awkward thing about Falwell's take on Tinky Winky. He wasn't totally wrong. In the years preceding his supposed expose... Many publications had written about the gay community's adoption of Tinky Winky as one of their own. When the show debuted in England in 97, its hypnotic, winking weirdness had almost immediately become popular with club kids in the gay community. <laughs> Tinky Winky is the first queer role model for toddlers, a British wow. media studies lecturer wrote that summer. 
Thought Tinky Winky was seen falling out of G-A-Y one night. <laughs> and that's what gave it away. It's a very mainstream club and people of all sexualities. Okay, sorry. Go there. <laughs> I forgot how we got down this road. Uh, we were talking uh, about... Children's, children's educational oh, yes. yeah, speech <laughs> patterns. Yeah, it did come off a real science story. That's right. And it was a fun one before you went back into horrifying environment <laughs> Climate thing. things. There's a, a new source of global warming gases that a scientist found hidden in waste. Uh, she's researcher Sarah Jean Royer set out to measure methane gas coming from biological activity in seawater. Instead, in a happy accident, she found that the plastic bottles holding the samples were a bigger source of this powerful warming molecule than the bugs in the water. Now she's published further details in a study into the potential warming impact of gases seeping from plastic waste. We got a lot of plastic waste. Uh, It was a totally unexpected discovery, Dr. Royer said. Some members of the lab are experimenting with high-density polyethylene bottles looking at methane biological production, but the concentrations were much higher than expected. So we realized that the emissions were not just coming from the biology, but from the bottles we were using for the experiment. Wow. After graduating from university in Barcelona, Dr. Roya found herself in Hawaii, leading teams of volunteers who were helping to remove the plastic from beaches at weekends while working on the chemistry of the substance during the week. Uh... Now she's published her report after spending a year and a half testing different types of plastic in and out of seawater to see if they emit methane and ethylene, which both contribute to the greenhouse effect. Dr. Royer found that the most widely used plastic, the stuff used to make shopping bags, is the one that produces the greatest amount of these warming gases. At the end of the study, after 212 days in the sun, this plastic emitted 176 times more methane than at the start of the experiment. Ironically, when plastics were exposed to air, the amount of methane emitted was double the level from seawater. So it's the sun that's causing it. Solar radiation acts on the surface of plastic waste. As it breaks down, it becomes cracked and pitted. These defects increase the surface area of plastic available to sunlight, which accelerates gas production. Even in the dark, the gas continues to seep out. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I like how everyone's blaming the plastic. How about giving the sun yeah. its fair share of the blame? Yeah. Well, luckily, we're, we're going to take care of the sun <laughs> this, this weekend, uh, in fact. Do we have time to talk about that, Matt? Do you want to do it? We're going to blow up the sun. Um, we've had a guest on the show before who was a college classmate of mine, Deepak Srinivasan, who's working on the Parker Solar Probe. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. And the launch window is... He just posted an article saying it was this weekend, but it looks it's it's open... Until August 23rd. It was previously August 19th. Yeah, it'll, it'll launch no earlier than the 11th and no later than August 23rd. Or that's the window. 11th to 23rd. So keep an eye out. Go to uh, just Google Solar Probe or go to NASA's site and you can see the latest starting on the 11th. Um, we can link to that in the show notes as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And in the back up and running Probably Science website donation which also has the donation button. It does have that. Yes. Sorry for that being down. Sorry, the website bit. was down. Someone asked about how to donate while we were away. That's what was it, why I mentioned that just now. It's back up. It's working. And I, I've been... Uh, we should talk after this about exactly the terms of uh, how we should set up Patreon and things. But I am well on the way to have that going. So once we get that going, I think that'll be an even easier thing than asking uh, people to click on our PayPal donate button. But yeah, we have a lot of new donors uh daniel monson just set up a new monthly donation thank you for that we got one from um uh stephen edmonds from keith statenfield austin walsworth pandora young 
Vikram Bhatt. Uh, one-off donation from David Geelan. Thank you for that. Callum Gleason, Drew Chapman, Matthew Arnold, Patrick Adam Chalkley, Thomas Hatfield, Cassie McElfin, Brooks Gilmore, and Jacob Rochester, and Stuart Holding. There's a few more, and we will thank them on next week's episode. Thank you, everyone. Yes. Thank you. If you want to donate, you can go to probablyscience.com and click on the donation button up there on that there tab. If you're not able to donate to help us keep things going, you can also help by spreading the word, telling loads of people, uh, tweeting about us, Facebooking, all that kind of good stuff, writing nice things about us on iTunes, as I know many of you do, and I do appreciate that. We both do. Yes, and we got a couple uh, other stories sent in from listeners, including uh, Christina Ruiz, who liked us talking about uh, sleep and narcolepsy on last week's podcast. She sent in an article about how sleep helps clear the brain, which we've talked a little about, as you said, with past guest Matt Walker. Um, a mouse study suggests that sleep helps restore the brain by flushing out toxins that build up during waking hours. The results point to a potential new role for sleep in health and disease. Scientists and philosophers have long wondered why sleep, why people sleep and how it affects the brain. Sleep is important for storing memories. It also has a restorative function. Lack of sleep impairs reasoning, problem solving, and attention to detail, among other effects. However, the mechanisms behind these sleep benefits have been unknown. Dr. Mikan Nedergaard and her colleagues at the University of Rochester Medical Center recently discovered a system that drains waste products from the brain. Cerebrospinal fluid, a clear liquid surrounding the brain, and spinal cord moves through the brain along a series of channels that surround blood vessels. The system is managed by the, brain's, by the brain's glial cells, and so the researchers called it the glymphatic system. The scientists also reported that the glymphatic system can help remove a tox, toxic protein called beta amyloid from brain tissue. Beta amyloid is renowned for accumulating the, in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Other research has shown that brain levels of beta amyloid decrease during sleep. In their new study, the team tested the idea that sleep might affect beta amyloid clearance by regulating the glymphatic system. The work was funded by NIH's uh, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Uh, They first injected dye into the cerebrospinal fluid of mice and monitored electrical brain activity as they they tracked the dye flow through the animal's brains. As reported back in 2013, in science, the dye barely flowed when the mice were awake. In contrast, when they were unconscious, asleep, or anesthetized, it flowed rapidly. Uh, changes in the way fluid moves through the brain between conscious and unconscious states may reflect differences in the space available for movement. To test the idea, the team used a method that measures the volume of the space outside brain cells. They found that this extracellular volume increased by 60% in the brain's cortex when the mice were asleep or anesthetized. So I guess your brain kind of gets out of its own way when you're asleep and lets this stuff uh, come clear stuff out? Well, well, the thing is, it's always terrified me, is when you hear stories about, say, world leaders who go, yeah, I, they function on four hours oh, of sleep Jesus. a night, and, they, they, and that's supposed to make them sound powerful, and they get stuff done. Like Thatcher apparently slept four hours a night. Yeah. And hearing this, it's even more terrifying. It's, it's like... You're doing a bad job. Yeah, you need to you know get that rest it's- yeah I, I think that's a great point it, it, it is one of those things that's just seen as a uh, as an asset so like yeah. look at how good this person is going oh no sleep is really <laughs> important for brain function and for sanity and for <laughs> mental acuity and every, like every aspect of and and also physical health and every other aspect of just existing yeah. exactly i mean you read stories about these ceos and supermenches and this kind of thing and they're like well i go to bed at midnight and i'm up at four to read my first emails and get a start on the day and it's like <laughs> you can't can you're, you yeah you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're borrowing it you're al- borrowing time from yourself <laughs> yeah. that's gonna come it back. almost feels it's- like you're sort of 
the other version of people going, yeah, well, I can drink, I can drink ten pints a day and be fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're sort of equally just inhibiting yourself. I, I guess some people do have higher tolerances yes. for the, these things. Some people have higher tolerance for lack of sleep. Other people have higher tolerance yes. for intoxicants. But at the same time, these people are... still probably be better if you got a nap. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as long as you can get a solid fourteen hours of sleep a day. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be fine. Don't brag about being the Gerard Depardieu of staying awake. Like, no, one, no one's glad you can. What did he say? He drank thirty bottles of wine a day. Is that what it was? Was it? God. Well, I mean, but looking at him, I believe it. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there was another article that was in that same email that I thought was kind of interesting, also dealing with brain activity. Um, the uh, scientists recently used supercomputer models to um, model one second of human brain activity. So uh, the most accurate simulation of the human brain to date has been carried out in a Japanese supercomputer with a single second's worth of activity from just 1% of the complex organ, taking one of the world's most powerful supercomputers 40 minutes to calculate, which is insane by 2018 computing standards that that's still the difference. Uh, Researchers used the K-computer in Japan, currently the fourth most powerful in the world, to simulate human brain activity. The computer has about 700,000 processor cores and 1.4 million gigs of RAM but it still took 40 minutes to crunch the data of just one second of brain activity. Well, it's still only the fourth most powerful computer. Yeah, well, let's get the first <laughs> one. Get the first yeah. one, please. Yeah. yeah. Where's, where's the first one? We can probably do the, the second <laughs> of the brain in 30, 30 minutes. Yeah. Take that, fourth most powerful. You don't even get a bronze medal. I'm trying to see the actual... Like, unless, unless one of the previous most powerful ones gets disqualified for cheating. Yeah. Performance-enhancing computer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to see what the like approximate computing power of that is. Uh, it used the open source neural simulation technology tool to repl- replicate a network consisting of 1.73 billion nerve cells connected by 10.4 trillion synapses. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Yeah. So while significant in size, the simulated network represented just one percent of the neuro of the neuronal network in the human brain. Uh, rather than providing new insight into the organ, the project's main goal was to test the limits of simulation technology and the capabilities of the K-computer. That's crazy. Um, through their efforts, the researchers were able to gather invaluable knowledge that will guide the construction of new simulation software. In addition, their achievement offers neuroscientists a glimpse of what can be achieved by using the next generation of computers, so-called exascale computing, which are those which can carry out a quintillion floating-point operations per second, which is uh, a billion million. Is that wait? It goes million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. So it'd be. Wait, so it's a it's a a million million. It's a hundred thousand million million. I've or lost no, track wait. of how many fingers you put up, but no, I'm sorry. It's a, a it's a million million billion. A billion a billion is nine zeros. A trillion is twelve. A uh, quadrillion is fifteen. So it's eighteen zeros. Yeah. And every six of those is a million. So it's a million million million. Right. <laughs> a million cubed. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds uh <laughs> sounds about right. It's a shit ton. Yeah. Well we're talking about the limits of the human brain and computers respectively. Well, more the human brain here. <laughs> Baz Lovenberg tweeted a story at us. This is I don't think we're gonna go in depth in here because this is definitely he asked whether this is more history, is history science. Well but this is re- vaguely related to the brain, so I, was, I will link to it on the show notes as well. For apparently fifteen hundred years, a millennium and a half Western Europe forgot how to swim. Really? What? Yeah. For retreating from the water in tr- terror, the return to swimming is a lesser-known triumph of the Enlightenment. Really? This is very interesting. 
So, so what what year did we go back in, and was there a swimming pioneer? So humans first learned to swim in prehistory, though. Although how far back remains a matter of debate between the paleoanthropological establishment and the followers of Elaine Morgan, who's a, a mid mid twentieth century, uh, I presume, historian who championed the aqua- oh, no, championed the aquatic ape hypothesis, an aquatic phase during hominid evolution between seven and four point three million years ago. Even though we may never have had an aquatic ancestor, compelling evidence exists for the swimming abilities of the representatives of the genus Homo, uh, of the various genus Homo since Homo erectus, who appeared some 1.8 million years ago. In the historical period, the myths of the ancient civilization of the Eastern Mediterranean testified to a positive relationship with water and swimming, mediated until late antiquity by a pantheon of aquatic gods, nymphs, and tritons. By the medieval period, the majority of Western Europeans who were not involved in harvesting aquatic resources had forgotten how to swim. Swimming itself was not forgotten, but the ability to do so hugely decreased. Bodies of water became sinister other worlds populated by mermaids and sea monsters. That's true. How, we, how do we explain the loss of so important a skill? Humans have never given up running, jumping, or climbing, so why do so many abandon an activity that was useful to obtain... Food and natural resources, vital to avoid drowning and pleasurable to cool down on a hot summer's day. The retreat from swimming began during late antiquity, as evidenced in the writings of the 5th century Roman military writer uh, Vegetius, who bemoaned the fact that unlike the hardy legionnaires of the Republic, whose only bath was the River Tiber, the recruits of his day had become too used to the luxury of the baths and had to be taught how to swim. Roman baths were furnished with large, shallow basins, uh, piscinae, but these were designed for soaking and sitting, not swimming. Nevertheless, is it conceivable that the majority of the population of the Western Empire could forget how to swim? It is, if one considers the size of the urban bathhouse infrastructure and the concentration of the populations living in inland cities in the late imperial period. In 33 BC, Rome had 170 bathhouses. By late 4th century, that number had exploded to 856. Wow. That's a lot of bathhouses. That is a lot They're of bathhouses. They're saying the more bathhouses, the lower the percentage of people who can swim because they just sit around in the bathhouses? Because they don't have to jump in the river anymore. Oh, okay. They can, they can do all their bathing just in a bath rather than having to... Well, also, they were probably all getting kind of like quite fat and doughy and they didn't want to take their tunics off at the beach. Exactly. <laughs> so. Also, improvements in bridge and transport infrastructure and the changes in agriculture that reduced dependence on aquatic resources meant that fewer and fewer people needed to know how to swim. I guess that makes sense. If you don't have to, if you can get across a river using one of them, them their bridges rather than having to swim. <laughs> the swimming skills of the Germanic peoples who hastened the collapse of the Western Empire in the 5th century had impressed the Romans during their first military encounters in the Republican and early Imperial periods. Yet over the centuries, as they became Latinized and crucially urbanized, they adopted the Roman custom of going to the baths until they too forgot how to swim. I never would have thought bathing would have been the reason people don't swim. Yeah. Uh, If the growth of bathing culture provides the practical explanation for the retreat from swimming, religion explains the transformation of attitudes towards it. After the abolition of pagan cults in the 4th century, the pantheons of aquatic deities were first demonized and then quickly forgotten breaking the positive link with water and swimming. The only survivor of this religious cull was the human-fish hybrid, the mermaid. Uh, According to Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, mermaids were sentient but soulless, existing somewhere between humans and animals. 
Anderson drew on medieval traditions that portrayed mermaids as morally ambiguous beings who sometimes fell in love with and married mortal men, passing themselves off as human, and sometimes as beguiling monsters who lured mariners to their death. Ooh, splash. There we go. <laughs> that horrible director's <laughs> cut of splash. <laughs> it just ends in drowning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Daryl Hannah kills Tom Hanks. <laughs> just really slowly. <laughs> just like a cat toying with a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> it's just 90 minutes of him just gurgling and then being briefly raised to the surface before he gets dragged back down again to the watery depths. I stayed till the end of uh, the credits of Shape of Water. Yeah, yeah. that goes yeah. down. Uh, during the Middle Ages, the mermaid symbolized an ambiguous relationship with water, especially among the mariners and fishermen of coastal communities, for whom they represented both the sea's allure and its mortal dangers. There's a, there's a woodcut picture here of a medieval woodcut of a sea monster. Oh, look at that dude. Uh, it's got, it's, that monster's eating a man. Yeah, with three pronged fangs. Ooh. That seems like a very impractical jaw that monster has for, as far as actually, actually chewing and swallowing. Yeah, it doesn't look like there's anything you can bite down no, with. Yeah. No, no, just one set of teeth that don't line up with anything. Uh, wow. But, fuck, we, I'm sort of doing nearly all this story now. It's, but it's too it's long really, to do the whole thing. I'm not going to do the whole thing, but it's really interesting. The French historian Jules Michelet described the Middle Ages as 1,000 years without a bath. We might revise that statement to read 1,500 years without a swim. And with plenty of baths, which are partly to blame for the not swimming, right? Well, right. Well, what about the Arthurian legend of the Lady of the Lake? I mean, she was in there. Didn't Arthur have to go in there and get the I sword? I don't know. Maybe just went from which, the side. How does that differ from the sword and the stone? Those to- unrelated things? Well, they're both, both Arthurian. I think it's two different ways that the sword came into possession. Oh, like they, they, don't, they wouldn't both exist in the same... In the I don't same know, actually. Universe. It's a very good question. But one one of them is Arthur pulls the sword from the stone, obviously, and another is that the Lady of the Lake comes out of the water and presents him the sword. And she wasn't a mermaid; she was just a a seafaring, a a lake-faring, a lake-faring enchantress. Okay, she had legs, though. I do want to read. Yes, I think so. Uh, Yeah, Versailles Versailles stank apparently because they didn't have any toilets or bathrooms in the palace. Uh, the return to swimming. I'm jumping ahead of it. Well, that's why perfume was invented, wasn't it? Really, to cover up the stench. Oh. Oh, uh, so it's just like a combination of flowery and shitty. Yeah, and they, exactly. they'd occasionally visit inland spas, but even then they just sit around, they wouldn't swim. The return to swimming in Western Europe was an excruciatingly slow protest that began in the 16th century. Uh, they have no stats for deaths by drowning in Tudor England, but the number was probably greater in the UK in the late 19th century. Sorry, greater than in the UK in the ni- late 19th century, where around 3,000 people drowned annually. You'd think that they teach people to swim to count as a countermeasure. But in the 1530s, German schools and universities decided the best remedy would be a total ban of swimming, which in the <laughs> university town of Ingolstadt on the Danube was punishable by the whipping of the drowned offender before burial. Wow. <laughs> like, if you drown, we're going to whip your corpse as a lesson to you. Jesus. Despite this hostile environment, a few leading Tudor scholars rep- recommended swimming in the 14 and 1500s. Uh, and then uh, in most influential was Everard Digby who was from around 1550 to 1605 a fellow of St. John's College Cambridge who published De Arte Natandi The Art of Swimming in 1587 a prize eccentric Digby was expelled from the university not for swimming nor for his habit of jumping out on fellows and scholars loudly shouting hello and blowing a trumpet (laughs) (laughs) 
She's is my kind of they, dude. Is, is hello spelled in any kind of phonetic way? Is it like it hello? is spelled? It is spelled H A L L O. Hello, hello, <laughs> hello. Da, 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 da. <laughs> he sounds like such a cunt. <laughs> Be so irritating. Imagine living with that piece of shit. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> just what a dick's fashion. This reminds me. Listeners. Oh, fucking trumpet Digby's back again. <laughs> <laughs> Digby's a perfect name as well for a trumpet <laughs> asshole. Oh, yeah. yeah, trumpet prick. Digby, the trumpet asshole. <laughs> That's the 80s SNL. <laughs> <laughs> The real reason for his downfall were his Catholic sympathies in a Protestant-run college. Oh, uh, they they so just use that as a ruse yeah. for the trumpet play. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Dig- Catholics with their- trumpet Digby's got a bit Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> but he published a swimming manual. Like most modern swimming manuals, it is divided, which was the go-to text for swimming in Western Europe until the 19th century. So this is like several hundred years this wow. lasted for. Wow. It's divided into two sections. Book one covers the theory of swimming, which Digby defines as a mechanical art whose purpose is to improve health and prolong life by preventing drowning. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yep. Uh, and he refers to Julius Caesar, who we learned in Plutarch's life had escaped a, an Egyptian ambush on Pharaohs by on Pharaohs rather by swimming, and other heroic ancient swimmers. Book two focuses on technique, safe entry into the water, propulsion, turning, floating, swimming underwater, and diving. The text reveals Digby's passion for swimming and his delight in amusing his friends by performing decorative feats in the water. Doesn't mention whether any of these are trumpet-based. <laughs> he has a special pool, a pool trumpet. <laughs> His underwater trumpet. Digby had read ancient military and medical treatises that uh, mentioned tr- swimming, but in terms of his practice, at, as his is the earliest known formal teaching method, it's likely it was self-taught. What makes the book particularly significant is not just the author's modern approach to his subject matter, but also the medium of its delivery. Dearty has the distinction of being the first illustrated how-to book in the English language. I got to get my hands on a copy of this. I got to say, Not you are, copy as, it, a, but, uh, as a swimmer, as yeah, someone who... Very interested in this. I, I would be interested to know how similar his technique is now to what is I currently... Can say <laughs> with certainty, it's nowhere, even less than 100 years ago, when like Johnny Weissmuller, the actor who played Tarzan, he was the gold medalist in a bunch of swimming events they would swim with their heads out of the water, which is so much slower to do, like water polo swimming. Maybe it's because goggles weren't invented, so they didn't... It's because they didn't want to get their hair wet. Or Hollywood that, hair. Hollywood hair, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, this, if people like this story, you should listen to the, the dollop episode on swimming pools. Have you heard that? I haven't. The history of swimming pools is so fucking bizarre. Because even in my dad's time, he was in high school in the 60s, and they had to swim naked in gym class. Really? In high school. <laughs> wow. And he acted like that was so normal. I think there's a whole thing with my dad's generation of like just the guys loving being naked in the company of other guys and thinking that's like a sign of manhood when really the story is so much grosser than that. If you listen to this dollop episode. Like, I, I'd imagine it was something that was propagated by not a good person. Yes, I'm just going to guess that that was a... <laughs> going to go out on a limb and say a, a bad human being mm-hmm. decided and, that that was the most virile way to act. They passed it off as having to do with like early filtration systems not being able to handle fabric that would uh, you know inevitably come off of whatever sw- proto right. trunks they had as opposed wow. to pubes body hair that's it's fine with that but not with a little bit of nylon or... it's insane he would tell me these stories I'm like, you're lying right now there's no way you guys would all get naked at 
school in the pool and just swim behind another naked guy. There's no, there's no way. It's like, yeah, that's what we do. It's, it's bizarre. I'm going to have to find you a copy of this book. Just, yeah, I want to see if there's, there's got to be a PDF of it somewhere, right? I'd imagine it, if we know there's pictures of this here, which means that it must have survived in some reasonable yeah. condition. By the way, any swimming fans, I know there aren't any who listen to this, but um, it's going to be an interesting 2020 Olympics because now I think the two fastest swimmers in the world are both Americans who are just hitting their stride. There's a guy named Michael Andrew who won three of the four strokes in the 50 Nationals last weekend. He's 19. He forewent, what's the past tense of forego? Uh, he gave up his college eligibility to go pro at like 15 years old. So he never went to college. His dad homeschools him and coaches him. And he's the current. He just beat Caleb Dressel, who is the fastest swimmer of all time, but isn't in his prime right now. So Caleb uh, Dressel is the fastest swimmer of all time. I mean, pretty much. There, OK, there were these suits that are banned now. So the world record in the 50 free is held by a guy from 2009, back when those polyurethane suits were still allowed. And Caleb's time is only like one or two tenths behind that and he'll he'll pass that guy so in the 100 and the 50 he's only behind Cesar Cielo for long course in short course he has the top 10 times ever swam in both those events so Phelps Phelps is two longer dis- is longer distances then well I mean I- different strokes Phelps has the record for I think the 400 IM but um, Caleb is the current fastest in the world in most of the short distances and the 100 fly it's just Caleb's going to beat Phelps' medal record, but this Michael Andrew guy might be in the running also. And it's interesting because they're 19 and 23, so they both have like three or four Olympics is still ahead of them. But Wow. How's uh, Brock Turner doing? Uh, <laughs> I think he actually is. I heard he's petitioning to get a retrial to have, even though he's out of jail, to have the actual whole thing stricken from really? his record. Really? No, yeah, come on. Yeah, it's crazy. It's pretty messed up. He's one of my less favorite swimmers. Yeah, he's yeah, not in the top. Um, uh, do you have another story for us, Matt? But there's a big one about how global warming may be unstoppable if we stick to the Paris target, where we, we basically are at a tipping point. We could be on the verge of triggering a series of cascading tripping points that result in the planet warming four or five degrees hotter than the pre-industrial benchmark. That, at least, is the view of a group of 16 climate scientists who've spelled out a scenario in which sea levels will be 10 to 60 meters higher than today. So even more important to be able to swim. (laughs) That's the thing we're forgetting. It's it's even more crucial. This warming will continue even if we cease pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, and the threshold could be as low as 2 degrees C. If they're right, it means that the supposed safe limit for global warming set out in the Paris Agreement might be anything but. 2 degrees may actually be very dangerous says Johan Rockström of Stockholm University, who is one of the 16. For most of the past half billion years, Earth was much hotter than today, with no permanent ice at the poles, the hothouse Earth state. Three million years ago, as carbon dioxide levels fell, it began oscillating between two cooler states, ice ages, in which the great ice sheets covered much land in the northern hemisphere, and interglacials like the present. The aim of the Paris Agreement is to limit warming to 2 degrees C by uh, 2100. But... By the, that's the year 2100. Mm-hmm. But if Rock, Strom, and Co. are right, we might be on the brink of pushing the planet out of the pleasant, present interglacial state and back into the hothouse Earth, sta- mm. Earth state. Mm. That means it might not be possible to stabilize global temperature at this level. Can I pause you for a second? Yeah. Do you guys feel the room getting hotter as we talk about this story? Like, <laughs> it's it's yeah. psychological. Yeah, yeah. By the yeah. It is reminding me how hot it is. My thermostat <laughs> is up to 79 just since we started recording. Uh you basically we're fucked we we are very likely fucked there is a nice a good story uh that 
Modified mosquitoes wipe out whole cities get dengue fever for the first time in Townsville, Australia, following the release of anti-dengue mosquitoes in 2014. Oh, that sounds like the beginning of a horror film. Mm-hmm. It's like, they've got rid of the dengue fever, but what have they infected the humans with? Yeah, they they have modified it. They've infected the mosquitoes with naturally occurring Wolbachia wool bacteria. Hang on a second. I've lost this. this sounds, it sounds like that thing in Nantucket where they're trying to eradicate the uh, Lyme disease epidemic with genetically modified mice. Cause that's yeah. Actually, and then there's people who are like, oh, no, you can't. Like super hippie people are like, no. I'm like, well, what would you rather have? Lyme disease? Like, I don't know. Yeah. But then there's always that worry that if you get it wrong, you know, you completely destroy the ecosystem. So like yeah. in Australia, when they introduced the cane toads oh, to right. get rid of right, right. whatever they were supposed to get rid of, and now they've got millions of cane toads everywhere. And then they had to wait. The poison sausage that they had to feed to... Who was eating the cane toads? And they had to make cane toad sausages that were poisonous to keep someone else from eating. Oh my, yeah, that's, that's multiple right. Multiple times that I forgot the details of it. We all. did. So, so the Wolbachia bacteria makes them unable to transmit viruses, and it stopped all outbreaks of dengue in Townsville. Wow. They hope all it, outbreaks. Wow. Yeah, they hope they that hopes it can provide a knockout blow against Zika in Brazil as well. Oh, that'd be good. Where the mosquitoes have been introduced into the favelas of Rio. I don't know. I don't know why you think that would be a bad thing, Matt. I think that's good. Yeah, why are you pro Zika? I don't agree with your pro Zika. I like I like the little heads. <laughs> cute. I think the little heads are cool. We haven't really heard much about Zika since the Rio games. I don't really know what the latest if we're supposed to be worried about. Oh, once the West has left the place no one where no one cares. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, my old uh, favorite surfing vacation destination, Nicaragua, is about to descend into civil war, it looks like. Oh, really? Yeah, it's real bad. Everyone's fleeing the country. That area uh, that you nearly bought a beach house. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I didn't buy that beach house now. <laughs> In a war-torn country where the military is shooting protesters and everyone is clamoring to get passports. Uh, and that ties into Lodge 49. Episode 2 opens in Nicaragua. Oh, really? Yeah, where our main character goes surfing. Where do you, was there a fictional city, or did he surf somewhere real? And it's it's a montage sequence at the beginning that was shot in Atlanta, but it's supposed to be Nicaragua somewhere. It's beautiful, and when I was there four years ago, it was delightful to be there. But uh, yeah, I hope, I hope um, for their sake, not just for my surfing trip's sake, that they don't descend. But mostly for your surfing, I mean, I mostly want to go back yeah. a little bit. But um, yeah. But if you go back, you'll be with armed guards. It's still probably, it's still cheap. You know, you hire some guards and you surf. It's really cheap to surf there now. It's really, I heard like uh, 80% of hotels have closed down and restaurants. Like it's like this, the country is, because tourism was its main thing recently, I think. And now that's completely gone. So. so can you surf holding a gun? I guess. I did tell a story about how we almost got killed though that one The time. guy with the knife on the yeah. beach. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, it's a bit of a. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. yeah. It was beautiful waves. Um. Good. Really nice way. <laughs> Tom, where can our listeners find out more about you and things you do? Uh, not that many places at the moment. Uh, so one of the things that I do do is I'm a contributing editor for Shinding Magazine, which is a music magazine out of the UK. Uh, that has a website. I think it's shinding-magazine.com. There's also Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. And I am currently in the process of building my own website that will have my writing, my journalism, music work. It will be called thomasdynamic.com, uh, but uh, that'll Which be is also and, your Twitter handle. It's also my Twitter handle, and it's a name that I used to DJ under. Uh, and that will be up and running in a month or so. So if people are listening to this come October, still, still up there, uh, go and look at thomasdynamic.com, and you might see some delightful pictures of me and some uh, crazy... Sp- 
Spotify playlists and all manner of nonsense. Love it. And in the meantime, you can also follow Lodge49 as well. That's at Lodge49, I think, on Twitter. Absolutely. There's also an Instagram account, which I think is Lodge49. Uh, they've set up today as well a fake Lodge49 page to make it look like it's the Lodge's real website. Oh, cool. Which is great. I can't remember what it's called. It's something like Links Lodge49, and it's really good. Uh, and it's got pictures of all the founding members of the Lodge. In an inside tip, the actual founder member, they've got this portrait, is uh, Jim Gavin, the creator's dad. Um, oh, brilliant. But also what's amazing is someone has already set up a conspiracy theory website around the show just last night. Because it's all about Masonic kind, not Mason, not Masonic, but secret rituals and things like that. And somebody not connected with the show in any way has put up a website going, what are, what are the secrets of the show? What can we define about the mysteries of the universe from this kind of show that Jim Gavin just kind of made up? Made up <laughs> I mean, made up, but also, you know, it has a full ritual, but everything there is based on real rituals. Well, exactly. Like, by the time the end of the season happens, someone, there will be... Yeah, uh, the... Uh, the, the, the Satanic powers yeah, will, have, will have returned to Earth. You know, you yeah. know everything. I mean, exactly. we've got, the backside of a dollar bill will make sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the Illuminati will return. No, no spoilers or anything, <laughs> but we are going to be plunged into a new hellscape. <laughs> exactly. But the show would be good watching until then. It is. That's yeah, all we're doing. Yeah. That's all I yeah, yeah. doing is amusing ourselves until the end, so like, yeah. why not do it this way? I know it's on AMC in the US. It's on after Better Call Saul, straight afterwards. Yeah, and, and uh, it'll be on Amazon Prime in the UK. It was supposed to start today, I was told, but uh, my parents couldn't find it. So, <laughs> All right. So we'll see. But keep looking, and yeah. And you can find us at probablyscience, mm-hmm. uh, probablyscience.com, probablyscience at gmail.com if you want to email us with stories you think we should cover, any questions, comments, clarifications, or all that good stuff. You can find us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. That's true. Anything to plug, Andy? Um, no, our next Guilty Treasure isn't until late September, so I'll let people know when that gets closer. All right, I'm gigging around L.A., and also watch the Jim Jeffrey Show on Comedy Central. And if you are going to be in L.A. as well and you want to see a taping of the Jim Jeffrey Show, let me know, because that's pretty easy to hook up, and it's a fun taping. Um, I have one quick thing I'd like to plug as well. Oh, please. Uh, So Shindig Magazine, who I write for, we do regular club nights in London, DJing stuff. We've got one, which I think is on the 17th. We've got three bands playing. It's in Dalston. Queen Victoria, but the one that's really exciting is going to be in November, uh, and get your tickets now, because I think it'll sell out, but basically we're getting the Sound Carriers, who are the band who've done all the music for uh, Lodge 49 all the way through, uh, back together. They, they're playing their first show in six years for us, and if this show takes off, I think it'll be a really exciting gig, and we're pressing up a very limited single just for that night, which you'll be able to pick up at the show, of the theme tune they wrote for Lodge 49 that we didn't actually use. <laughs> so so uh, it should be a good night and really fun and hopefully you can make it to that fantastic do all that Tom thanks so much for joining listeners thanks for listening we'll be back next week with a new Probably Science yep we'll see you then go watch Lodge 49 bye, bye.